Let's hear God's word now. Judges chapter 21, beginning with verse 15. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn an oath, saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, In fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh. Then go to the land of Benjamin. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say to them, Be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of the book of Judges. Let's ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to this bewildering portion of your word, we would have the help of your spirit, that we would be enabled to learn what we ought to learn. And Lord, we pray that even in a dark passage, the light of Christ would shine forth upon us. May we be pointed to him and may we trust in him more fully. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, it's been a little while since we were in Judges chapter 21, so let me recap for you briefly what is going on here, because clearly we're jumping in at the end of a story. There had been civil war in Israel. That civil war had been kicked off by disgraceful behavior on the part of one city within the tribe of Benjamin. You remember the nation of Israel was divided into 12 tribes. Each tribe had their own territorial allotment. And there was a Levite who was passing from Bethlehem back to where he lived. And he and his concubine and his servant spent the night in the Benjamite city of Gibeah. Well, some of the men of Gibeah instead of demonstrating hospitality, actually rose up and demanded to be allowed to abuse this guest. They were foiled with regard to the man, but they were enabled to abuse the concubine all evening, and then she died. The Levite cut her into 12 pieces and mailed those pieces throughout the tribes of Israel. That brought the other tribes together, and they said to the Benjamites, turn over the wicked men who have done this, so that we can mete out justice on them. And the Benjamites didn't do that. Instead, they gathered their own army to protect those wicked men. Well, that led to civil war. There were heavy losses on both sides, but ultimately the tribe of Benjamin, men, women, and children were all destroyed except for 600 men. 
They were camped out in a wilderness stronghold in a rock. Well, then the rest of Israel begins to think, and they're sad. They're losing one of their 12 constituent tribes. So they think, well, how can we get wives for these 600 men so that they can work together and rebuild the tribe? Well, the big barrier there was that they had all taken an oath that none of them were allowed to give any of their daughters to the tribe of Benjamin in marriage. So they're caught, they're trapped between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, they're not willing to see Benjamin exterminated, but on the other hand, they have an oath. They're not allowed to give the Benjamites wives. So they come up with two solutions to this. The first solution is to find out, well, which cities did not join in the civil war against the Benjamites? The answer was Jabesh Gilead. So they killed everybody in Jabesh Gilead, except for 400 young women whom they married off to 400 of the Benjamites. They still have a problem. They have 200 men with no wives. Their next brilliant solution is wait for there to be a feast to the Lord. Wait for there to be a holy day. When the young women come out for their celebratory dances, then all 200 of you leftover Benjamites, each of you kidnap one wife and take her away. Kidnap one young woman and take her away to be your wife. And so that's what happened. This is the story. Now our challenge is to learn something good from this. I have a few observations. Observation number one, this does tell us something about the nature of the Bible. People sometimes get the impression, if they're not well acquainted with the Bible, that what you find in Scripture is a little bit of gentle uplift, is some mild inspiration. Now, there is encouragement in Scripture. There is inspiration. It's not particularly gentle. It's definitely not mild. And it's not the only thing that is in Scripture. I don't think anybody turns to Judges 21 and reads it for a little bit of extra cheerfulness on this particular day. This is not a cheerful passage. But it's here. It's part of the Word of God. And instead of filtering out, instead of saying, well, the Word of God are the parts of the Bible that appeal to me, instead we need to expand our definition of what we need, what kind of words from God we need to hear to include everything that the Bible, in fact, contains. So that's an interpretive observation. That's a hermeneutical observation. Apparently, you need more than gentle uplift and mild inspiration. You need more than something that makes your day a little bit more cheerful and chipper. Well, one of the things that we need is to see the reality of sin. When people don't take grace seriously, when people are not thankful for the grace of God, most of the time it's due to not appreciating the seriousness of sin. Well, a passage like this makes us face up to that. Now, this passage is not told from the perspective of the young women. But you can't help wondering about that. You think about the young women from Jabesh Gilead. They have other Israelites come and massacre everybody else. And the only reason they're alive is so that they can be married off to a Benjamite against their will, potentially. Well, then these other people, they went to Shiloh. They were going for a feast to the Lord. They're young ladies. They're just going to enjoy some dancing. Oh, no, they're going to be kidnapped out of the vineyards and carried away. And if anybody protests, they're going to be told, you didn't give your daughter 
So it's okay. You haven't done anything wrong. Well, the people, the fathers and brothers who might have protested, maybe that wasn't their main concern. Maybe their main concern was, in fact, the well-being of their daughter or their sister. But that's not in view here. Well, this is one way to see the seriousness of sin. Sin makes you selfish. Sin makes you inconsiderate towards others. Sin doesn't seem to care how much damage is caused to those around you. They're solving a problem. And the young women, well, they're just a means to an end. Now, I'm not endorsing that. Please understand that. I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I'm saying that's what we find. That's what is actually present here in the text. And, of course, that has happened throughout history, and that continues to happen today to young women and to others as well. There's also an ethical observation that you can make about this passage. The people who are doing these things are not unethical in the sense, in the very carefully qualified sense, that they don't care about right and wrong at all. Why are they going to these extraordinary lengths? Because they're afraid of breaking their oath. Now, that is a legitimate part of ethics. If you make a promise, if you give your word, you need to live up to that. You need to keep it, whether you gave your word to another human being or whether you gave your word to God. But in the name of God, in the name of keeping their oath, they're engaging in massacre and kidnap. Something does not seem right there. Well, what's happening, and this is what always happens with inadequate ethical systems, one part of it, one element, one commandment, one truth is taken and made to govern all of the others. But that's not how ethics are supposed to work. You have to hold all of the duties. You have to hold all of the responsibilities together. We were given 10 commandments And none of those ten is allowed to drive out the others. We have to hold all ten together. Here, if you want to say that they were hanging on to the third commandment, not to take an oath and then ignore it, well, they let the third commandment be their excuse for ignoring the sixth and seventh. That's not right. We're responsible for all of the commandments. There's also a little bit of a historical observation, and that is what they did is told, and the author doesn't stop to turn aside and tell us how wrong it was. He indicates his disagreement with all of this, with the whole mess, by saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But he doesn't stop to excoriate. He doesn't stop to condemn at every point along the way. People in the past were sinners, just like people today are sinners. Sinners are going to sin. We can take that for granted. It doesn't mean we approve. It doesn't mean we agree. But it does mean that we have some humility to recognize that we too have blind spots. We too make mistakes. We too are sinful. We don't have to pour scorn on the past at every point. Now, that focus is also relevant when we come to the Bible. The Bible is not about answering our curiosity. I mean, there'd be an amazing opportunity for some historical fiction here. Somebody could write a story where there were two women from Jabesh Gilead and two women from 
the, the feast at Shiloh, and they have different reactions to what happened to them. One of them adapts and does well, and another one falls apart and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of potential drama that happened here that would be very interesting to explore. The Bible doesn't do that. I would like to know what happened with these 200 young ladies. How did they respond to being kidnapped from a feast of the Lord and carried off to rebuild the tribe of Benjamin? But we're not told that. The Bible is not about our curiosity. There's a focus. There's a point. There's a direction that it's headed. And almost ruthlessly, it leaves aside what isn't relevant to that. Now, I say all of that by way of very extended introduction as we now come to look at, well, what is that focus? What is being drawn out of here? Well, specifically in these verses, I think you can see that the fundamental concern is an inheritance. There's themes that continue. You know, they're grieved because there's a void in the tribes of Israel. But notice what the elders of Israel say. The elders of the congregation say, verse 17, there must be an inheritance. Now, this inheritance is not just a place for them to live. That had already been secured, although the cities had been destroyed and needed to be rebuilt. They had a territory, but now they could miss out on that territory because there wouldn't be people to live in it. You needed not just the land, you needed the population to dwell in the land, to keep it, to cultivate it. And so that's the problem of, well, you have 600 single men. They're going to die out in a generation unless they are provided with wives. The concern there is for an inheritance. Now, this is a very important concern in the Bible. It's particularly important in the books of Joshua and Judges because this involves God's faithfulness. The Israelites had been, promises had been made to them by God. They were supposed to inherit the land. Well, that involved being around to inherit it, being around to use it and to enjoy it. If a a breach were made in the tribes of Israel, it would call God's faithfulness into question, at least according to some. Now, the sin of man, the unbelief of man, cannot make the righteousness of God of no effect. But... It would be something that would be a stumbling block for people. It would be difficult for people. In other words, the concern for an inheritance was legitimate. I don't think it was a concern that overrode every other concern. They seem to have taken it that way. But it was a legitimate concern. Now, this again shows you the seriousness of sin. Sin is serious because of how... It makes us treat other people in a heartless, in an indifferent, in an instrumentalizing way, where instead of thinking of them as persons, we think of them as means to an end. This person can help me get what I want. That's the only thing that's important about them. Well, that's very wicked. But you notice what it does here as well. Because sin made a breach in the tribes of Israel, sin calls God's name into question. And isn't that? What Paul says, what he quotes from the Old Testament, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Why? Because of the conduct of the people of God. Well, that is also a sad reality. You've heard people say something like, well, if that's what Christians are like, I don't want anything to do with them. If that's what God's people are like, well, I'll tip my hat and say goodbye to God. 
God's name is blasphemed, at times at least, because of his association with us. Our sin raises question marks, at least in other people's minds, about the goodness, about the faithfulness, about the righteousness of God, even if it doesn't raise those question marks in our own minds. Well, that is a huge element in the seriousness of sin. Can you take sin lightly when it causes God's name to be blasphemed? That should not be a little matter. That should not be something to say, oh, well, who cares? That's pretty bad. That's genuinely terrible. So an inheritance was snatched. You could get into that, the irony of that. Here they come to worship the Lord. They go out and dances, and it's possible. I mean, if young people are congregating, even at a religious festival, it's possible that a lot of them are expecting to come out of it with an offer of marriage or a betrothal or something. But they weren't expecting guys to jump out of the vineyards and grab them and throw them over their shoulder and run off with them. They weren't expecting things to be done without dowry, without preparation, without any of the niceties of making such a radical change. These girls were kidnapped. They were not given a choice. And the elders of the congregation were already ready. If anybody protested, they had an answer. Justice was not going to be done. There would be no redress. There would be no putting things right. People were going to be sacrificed for what they thought of as the greater good. The elders were planning to say, be kind to the Benjamites for our sakes. We made a mistake. We didn't reserve women alive to preserve the tribe of Benjamin. So now your daughters have to suffer. Be kind to them for our sakes. This is what sin does. And then everybody returns to their inheritance. The congregation of Israel goes back home. The tribe of Benjamin goes back home, rebuilt the cities, dwelt in them. Everyone goes their separate ways. It's like it never happened. Except that you still have a woman who was dismembered. Except that you still have a smoking hole in the ground where Jabesh Gilead used to be. Except you still have 200 families who lost their daughters to kidnapping. Other than that, everything's peachy. That's why the last verse is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What were the Benjamites doing when they assaulted the Levites' concubine? They were doing what was right in their eyes. What was the tribe of Benjamin doing when they rose to defend those wicked men? They were doing what was right in their own eyes. What was the concubine doing when she ran away from the Levite? What was right in her own eyes? What was the Levite doing when he pushed her outside to be abused? What was right in his own eyes? What were the elders of the congregation doing? They were doing what was right in their own eyes. They had a legalistic scruple about breaking an oath, but they had no concern about the blaspheming of God's name. They had no concern about the mistreatment of the young women. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. That's basically the definition of sin. What is sin? Well, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. God tells us what's right and wrong. Sin involves us saying, yeah, no, I'm going to go with my own definition. All of this chapter is characterized, all this whole narrative is characterized by sin. Well, that leads me to an observation about justice. 
In this world, justice is always rough, always partial, always imperfect. Many times there's nothing you can do. Many times the best thing you can do is cut your losses and keep moving forward. There was no way for those young women who were kidnapped to get back home. So what did they have to do? Well, they had to make the best of it. Is that horrifying? Sure. Would it have been worse if they hadn't made the best of it? Well, yeah, for them. They could have made it even worse in that regard. And that's not justice. That's not righteousness. That's not the way things are supposed to be. But what do we expect when we choose what is right in our own eyes over and over and over again? God has showed us what is good. He's told us what he wants. He wants us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And we do what's right in our own eyes. And then, like these Israelites, we blame God for the consequences. You notice how it reads in verse 15. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Did the Lord make those Benjamites behave that way in the city of Gibeah? Did the Lord make Benjamin rise to defend them? No. That was their doing. The Lord has made a breach. Well, not without a reason, not without a cause. We blame, we sin, we do what's right in our own eyes, and then we blame God for the consequences of our sin. Isn't that convenient? And then that leads to a world where Even on the rare occasions where there is justice, it's not great, it's not perfect, it's not exact, it's exaggerated or inadequate or both. This is a sober reality, and we need to come to terms with it. In this world, there will be suffering, there will be sorrow, there will be injustice. We can make ourselves sick worrying over it, or we can do what we can, and we can make the best of it. But we're not left to just say, well, nothing you can do. There is a promise. There's even an implicit promise embedded in those words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's not always going to be the situation. In due time, there will be a king. Now, there will be lots of sufferings under those kings. There will be a lot of imperfect justice There will be a lot of times where those kings use their authority as one who administers justice to others to get away with injustice and oppression themselves. But in those words, there's the prospect of something better. And that prospect is more fully announced by the prophet Isaiah. Very familiar verses from Isaiah chapter 9. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What is the promise? The promise is of a king who will reign with judgment and justice. Not imperfect justice, but absolute, exact justice. That promised king, of course, is the Lord Jesus. You can see the exactitude of his justice when he says, by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. In Matthew chapter 12, even your very speech 
will come up for review before this righteous king. People won't get away with harsh and abusive language. People won't get away with lies and deceit. People won't get away with hypocritical professions of love and respect and friendship when their heart is something different. Even our very words will be reviewed. On the one hand, of course, that is a solemn reality. Because we have a tendency, we read a passage like Judges 21, and what's our first thought? Well, thank God I'm not like that. (laughs) But you are. You are. We all are. We all do what is right in our own eyes. In terms of justice, in terms of nothing but justice, there is no hope for any of us. But the righteous king is also a suffering savior. By substituting himself in our place, by bearing the punishment we deserved, he's able to forgive our sins without perpetrating any injustice. Now, of course, we still have to come to terms with the forgiveness of sins, not only in our own case, but also in the case of others. We have to acknowledge that if God has forgiven the sins of those who have sinned against us, well, we have to as well. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, as we say in the Lord's Prayer. And we have to be able to move forward with that forgiveness in this life. But we also know that the Lord Jesus is righteous. He is just. He will purge out of his kingdom everything that promotes this kind of wickedness. He will deal with it. Only the holy, only the pure. Those made holy and pure by his grace, yes, but only the holy and pure will have a place in the kingdom of Christ. Well, the applications of that should be fairly obvious. If you don't know that your sins are forgiven, there is no hope apart from Christ. If you're not sure that you have sins that need to be forgiven, you should understand that you're contributing to the kind of injustice that we've read about in this passage today. The choices you make, doing what is right in your own eyes, that does not make a better world for anyone, not even for you. You need to repent. You need to come to Christ in faith. You need to acknowledge your sinfulness and embrace his forgiveness. And if you have done that, well, you need to forgive others. You need to let go of the resentment. You need to let go of the anger. Is there injustice that needs to be addressed? There is. Sometimes we can address it. Sometimes we can't. You need to leave that in God's hands. If there's a way to fix it, well, by all means. But if there isn't, don't let that ruin your life. You belong to a king who reigns in judgment and justice, who will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. We're told in the book of Ecclesiastes, nothing is hidden from him. Everything will come up for review. Well, you can trust then. You don't have to be the judge in your own case. You can trust the Lord Jesus to judge. You can trust the Lord Jesus to sort it out. And you can keep moving forward with a life where you try not to do what's right in your own eyes, with a life where you try to do what is right in the Lord's eyes. In that way, at least you don't continue adding to this mountain of injustice. Who is our answer to all of this? Well, unto us, 
A son is born unto us. A child is given. The answer to the book of Judges was not a political king. The answer to the book of Judges was not better laws. The answer to the book of Judges was not political revolution or different economic conditions. The answer to the problem of sin always is, always has been, always will be the Lord Jesus Christ received as our prophet, priest, and king. Accept no substitutes. What do you need? You need Jesus. Amen.